happened. All right. Hello and welcome to Just Animals Podcast. I'm Elle and with me as always is my dad, aka Guy. Hello, Pod World. It's great to be back and it's great to have Dr. Lowy, one of our top Just favorite- Lowe, there's no E. Just, just sorry, Dr. Lowe. One of our favorite, favorite uh, guests. And I've got some great questions for you. Oh, uh, of we course did, you do. Uh, did you, what do you call that thing that was a shark? What did you call it? Shark, uh, what do you call that uh, exhibit or thing that his we shark went? lab. Oh. That is his shark lab. Oh, yeah. But the event is called Sharks at the Beach. Sharks, sharks at, the beach. at the Beach. Yeah. Not yes. to confuse We have Sharks at the Beach. Yeah. All yeah. right. It was great. If you're down in Long Beach, uh, is that happen every year? Is that an annual event? Or how often do you do that? It was. That's our third annual. We didn't do them, of course, for the last two years because of COVID. Right. But, right. Um, this was the third one that we've held. And that's the most people we've ever had. We had over uh, 740 people. Wow. Well, it, that's It was great. fabulous. In addition to uh, sea animals, they had this room with... Uh, the other mammals and... Other mammals. And, and uh, that avians. was very exciting to touch. <laughs> uh, the. It's, it's interactive. You can touch a lot of stuff in the exhibit. That's, you know... Especially my daughter, she's a toucher. Uh, but uh, it's it's nice to be able to feel what an otter feels like, you know. Exactly. And yeah. and I think yeah. that hopefully that connection makes people more um, anxious to protect animals. Well, and and keep in mind that you know those those are university collections. Yeah. And they've been, they've been amassed over literally decades. Right. And they're, they're what we use to train students. So, um, you know, in, in the past, we would have to take students to a museum. But, um, you know, we've, we've made these collections. They require, obviously, special rooms and places to keep and preserve them. Yeah. But imagine training a vertebrate zoologist who actually gets to see the skull of a walrus or, right. you know, to feel the fur of an otter. So, you know, those are things that, you know, in our virtual world, it becomes really hard to train scientists these days if we can't give them that experience. Right. right. Well, right. I, I need to I need to hijack this podcast for just no, a no, second. No, 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 no. Stop. Funny. For what? For what? But, but let me, I, want to, I want to talk to Dr. Lowe about this. I just saw this come through on my news feed. Well, it's hold on. Can LA. we let... Quiet. Let me just... Give, give, me, give me two minutes. Give me two minutes because this is critical. Sorry, Dr. Lowe. No, no, he's going to be, appreciate this question. So, Dr. Okay. Lowe, I just found this today from the Los Angeles Times. History of DDT ocean dumping in L.A. worse than expected. EPA investigation finds. After an ex exhaustive historical investigation into the barrels of DDT waste reportedly dumped decades ago near Catalina Island, federal regulators concluded that the toxic pollution in the deep ocean could be far worse and far more sweeping than what scientists anticipated. In internal memos made public recently, officials from the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency determined that acid waste from the nation's largest manufacturer of DDT had not been contained in hundreds of thousands of seal barrels. Most of the waste, according to the newly unearthed information, has been poured directly into the ocean from massive tank barges. This is sad, oh. sad news. Yes. I, I mean, I've, I've served on the Palos Verdes Superfund Site Science Committee, and, and we've known about the records. What I think most people were shocked at was that what they've seen on the seafloor does not match what were in the historic records. So we know that's been there. 
we, we've known that that's been there for, for decades, right? The problem is we didn't know the magnitude of that because out of sight, out of mind, right? That's why ocean dumping back in the day was the preferable way of getting rid of things like that. Nobody would ever see it. So, but now with the new technology, we do have the ability to see it. And we now recognize that it doesn't match the records. I think what most people are shocked at was that that was permittable. That was, that was allowable back in those days. Yeah. So I think. Yeah. I mean, Catalina is not that far from the beach of LA. It's about 20 miles. Is that it? Uh, Yeah. Less than, it's about 20 miles, um, but that's fairly deep water. So uh, the thing that we have been noticing is that the levels of DDT in coastal waters and in shallow, the shallow parts have been slowly dissipating. So what that tells us is that there is a disconnect between that deep water environment and the shallow water environment. So we've been somewhat insulated from that, which is good. The problem is there are some animals that are capable of diving to those depths and then bringing that back up. Um, so the question is, without trying to clean it up, would we create a bigger problem trying to clean it than we yeah. would if we left it in place? Yes. And and what would be the long-term uh, consequences of leaving that in place, assuming nothing disturbed it? That's that's the million-dollar question because sometimes, like asbestos, they say don't mess with it because when you Just mess with it, it you, release, yeah. you release the uh, – toxins as a but um have you been noticing in 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 sea mammals and sharks do you measure ddt we do we do and And we've measured some of the highest levels measured in any shark in the world um even in baby white sharks what uh we found very interesting was that uh how could a baby have such high levels of ddt and pcbs And of course, what we learned from those studies was that the moms offload their contaminants to their babies during their pregnancy, just like mammals do. Mm. So um, that means a baby white shark could be born with very, very high uh, contaminant levels, never having fed on its own in the natural environment. (laughs) So our question is, what impact has that had in white sharks? Well, as you've probably seen, there's a lot of white sharks around. So the next question that we're seeing is, or trying to answer is, how can these sharks have such high levels and not show ill effects of them? So that's a question that we haven't been able to answer. Maybe sharks hold some secret on how to deal with these high contaminant levels physiologically that other vertebrates don't. So I think we have a lot to learn from them not just about you know how they can live to be over 300 years old like some species but how do they deal with contaminants better than other animals so would it would it be your prescription right now just to not mess with that leave it alone or what what would you recommend if if money were not an object sure after dealing with the palace verdes shelf on how to deal with that and the challenges of how to do that and not resuspend more of that contaminant in the water I'm not sure there's a way to do that, how to clean that problem up without redistributing some of that in the water column. And, and that's assuming that money is no object. So I I think we need to evaluate that very carefully. Is there a way to do it? And of course, humans are brilliant. You know, if you give us a problem, we have brilliant engineers that find solutions. 
but um, with those solutions would have to come. You can't make the problem worse than it already is. What was very so, disturbing to me to learn, uh, and this company is right down there in LA, it was called Montrose. You may know, have heard of them. Oh, yes. <laughs> they were making DDT 10 years after we banned it in the United States. Yeah, it's yeah, being sold out of the countries. Yeah, it's legal in other countries. So. so is it internationally banned now yet? No. No. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So question, are we in real time watching or observing a, a LD50 type of thing? Like, are we in real time observing? We're going to see that. I mean, there's no guarantee. Sure. Hopefully they don't die off. But is that what you're also observing for as well? Is like, what's the LD50 of, our, of these white sharks? If Assuming that they, you know, all of a sudden can't cope with the amounts of DDT in their system. I mean, hopefully, I think we're all fingers crossed. Hopefully they can. Um, but, you know, I'm sure this is also has potential to turn into that type of study as well correct? Sure. Sure. And the problem is with sick sharks, we don't know if a shark is sick because when it is sick and it dies, it sinks to the bottom. So we right. never get to see them and we can't examine them to figure out why they died. So, so that, that does pose a problem. Um, sharks that strand, however, like we recently had a shark that stranded at Huntington beach last week, uh, no kidding. thresher shark. And Whoa. we were able to do the necropsy on that shark with Dr. Mark Okihiro, who is the state's fish pathologist. And, and his preliminary conclusions was that shark died from a massive bacterial infection. Ooh. So we're trying to figure out what those bacteria are, how that shark got that infection, and why it caused the shark to strand. So gotcha. it, it's getting access to those kinds of animals and sure. doing that kind of science will help us determine, you know, was that shark's immune system weakened, for example, right. because it was laden with DDT or PCB. Right. So all those analyses have to be done. Right. So there, it, it, I feel good knowing that in California, we have people like Dr. Okihiro, who's doing that kind of research for the state. Absolutely. Absolutely. So One other without... fact that I didn't learn this, uh, 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 that I did learn today when I was reading this article or listening to it, was that uh, Rachel Carson was a marine biologist. I did not know that. <laughs> yes. I mean, I, yeah. I knew about she the silent spring, but I didn't know the marine biology connection. Yeah. I mean, she was a phenomenal naturalist, period. But yes, sure. she was trained as a marine biologist. And, and I would consider her one of the bravest people I've ever met or not. I never had a chance to meet her. But uh -huh. of the people that I know in the modern era of ecology, by far one of the bravest people out there. I mean, she, she saw a problem and she didn't stop until people recognized that and did something about it. And, and, and uh, you know, if you read some of the early challenges that she faced, I mean, she just never quit. She just kept going to Congress and kept reaching out to legislators saying, there's a problem, there's a problem, there's a problem. So, um, you know, we, we need more people like her. All right, so here's a, here's a, a corollary to that. Maybe we need a new Rachel Carson, and I think you might know this person. But while we were at your shark lab, uh, I was talking to one of your associates and talking about um, uh, sun sunscreen and its impact on um, coral, you know, mm -hmm. the uh, reefs. And um, I said, well, can't we get the United States, at least, to come out and say you can't use whatever it is. I, there's oxybenzone. I don't know the which chemicals, but it's quite a few, isn't it? Yeah, can't we get them to say, "Hey, 
just like we stopped DDT, or is the sunscreen lobby so strong that uh, we're we're never going to get this done? I mean, if we're kill, if it's de- documentable that we're destroying the reefs and impacting the oceans, I mean, there's there are substitutes. We don't need have to invent something else. I think zinc oxide may be reef safe. I'm not a hundred percent sure, but it seems like an easy fix that just needs just needs uh, sunscreens need to be reformulated with known uh, ingredients that don't have adverse impact on the uh, core. Sure. So um, there's a recent study that came out that showed that, that some of that isn't true and that, really? that it may actually be over-exaggerated, the actual oh. impact. And it's a good scientific study. Um, and it brings about the point of the need for um, additional work, right? So... You know, one group does a study and they come to a conclusion. And, and what makes science great is that it, it, it should be challenged. People should mm-hmm. come in and say, OK, convince me. You know, you've really got to convince me that what you're seeing is real. So it was additional studies that have come back and shown that, well, maybe some of those chemicals aren't the problem. Maybe there are some other things that are going on. Mm-hmm. So uh, and they're not being funded by the sun, sunblock companies. Um, you know, these are independent scientists that you know, are, are doing work to do what we should be doing. And that is asking, is what we're seeing real? So um, just like the DDT phenomenon, right? So we've got a big DDT problem and, and we know that those chemicals, we call them legacy con- contaminants because even though they've been banned in this country, they hang around and they don't deteriorate very quickly and they gather in animals and they can have a prolonged problem. So, but it's not like we haven't done anything about that. We banned the use and the manufacturing of that in the United States. Um, it's no longer distributed, but we also have cleanup issues to deal with. So you bring about a really good point. And the point is somebody has to recognize a problem. That's usually scientists that do that. And then somebody has to say, we need to do something about the problem. And that almost always requires some regulation. That requires somebody to come in and say, okay, we can't do it this much, or we've got to find another solution. And we're going to reduce the rate at which we do it, right? Okay, so that requires usually regulation or legislation. But after that is the most important step, in my opinion, and that's innovation. We need to innovate. We need to find a solution to the problem. And maybe that's getting rid of the problem. Maybe that's mitigating the problem. Or maybe that's finding another solution so that we don't go down the same track. So this path, this process of identifying a problem, regulating and innovating, we see again and again through human history because humans have a great, have had a great knack of screwing up our environments. True. Yes, we are pros at that. And then trying to fix it. And sometimes our fixes actually create new problems. Right. So, So we have learned in a certain sense to not repeat history, but yet we still do it. Nonetheless, I would argue that it's that innovation that has enabled us as a, as a species, as a population to grow because our ability to innovate and solve many of our problems that were literally killing us. Yeah. True. All right. Okay. So well, we appreciate you're the, you're being, the you're cut off. No, cut I know. Off. I know. No, no, but he cut off now. I thought, I hope that you've, think that those were intelligent, uh, important questions to ask. Absolutely. Okay. 
Okay, Good. you're cut off now. Yes, All so right. he got a brief introduction, but yes, back with us again, friend of the show. Dr. Christopher Lowe, back with us. We're so excited. Thank you again for coming back. He was our, yes, well, he still is the shark expert. We had yes. the great opportunity to actually visit the Shark Lab last weekend and uh, finally meet Dr. Lowe in person. It was a phenomenal experience. Again, if you're ever visiting Cal State Long Beach, definitely go say hi, check out the Shark Lab, yep. all their studies. They have some great specimens on display as well. But today, a different type of cartilaginous fish. I hope they are cartilaginous, right? Okay. Yes. <laughs> we are actually going to be talking about rays, specifically stingrays. And going into that, there are there's freshwater and marine, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. So do you study both or is there a particular species that you study? Well, so, so we study the local stingrays, which are all marine. Um, and the freshwater stingrays are primarily found in the Amazon. So um, there are a few what we call brackish water rays. They're species that can live in not complete freshwater, um, not complete seawater. They can move back and forth between the two. Whereas the pure freshwater rays, like in the Amazon, are pure freshwater. They do not go back to saltwater. So they, they're an interesting group because they tell us a lot about how sharks and rays as a group learn to tolerate salt water or right. move the fresh water and how they physiologically do that right wow so so that's an interesting question that you just brought up because okay the gills is the area where they uh, pass the water over it and it gets the oxygen out of the water correct all right so obviously in the salt water there's salt that uh, yeah. i'm not sure how it affects their physiology, but uh, is there different type of gills or what, what have you noticed or how does it work? Same type of gills as, yeah. as the bony fish, right? So in uh -huh. terms of how they work, the tissues, yeah. um, what makes sharks different is that marine sharks and marine rays can keep their blood salinity slightly higher than that of seawater. Higher than seawater. Higher than seawater. That's right. That's pretty salty. Yes. So slightly <laughs> higher. And the way they do that is they retain urea. Oh, so urea, okay. you know, ammonia, urea, yeah. those are all, those are all chemicals that are the result of the breakdown of proteins, right? So that is an end product. Now, ammonia is toxic to animals. Fish excrete ammonium through their gills because it's toxic. What sharks do is do a little bit more biochemistry, convert that to urea and retain it in their blood. They don't get gout? Doing, they don't get gout. <laughs> That's another thing we should probably look at. How do they have such high urea and not having gout? They get goiters, but they don't get gout. Oh, okay. 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 Yeah. So the goiters are caused by iodine deficiencies, right? Just like right. they are in people. But um, by retaining urea, they can keep their blood almost as salty as seawater, which means their their cost of regulating their salt water balance is much cheaper than it is for a, a saltwater fish. So, so that's an advantage that they have. But urea can be toxic too. Right. So they also have another compound that they retain that prevents urea from denaturing DNA. So that's called TMAO. So they have a cocktail, if you will that helps them keep their blood salty and that enables them to keep their costs down while living in the marine environment. 
Wow. Mm. So our local stingrays, are they, how big are they roughly? Well, bat rays can get, ooh, they can weigh over 80 to 100 pounds. So they oh, wow. can get to be a wingspan of over five or six feet long. Oh, yeah, they wow. can get pretty big. That is Do all rays big. have a um, poisonous tail or stinger or some so, of them don't? Some, some of them don't. So there are the true stingrays. They're the ones with a modified scale that yeah. forms the spine. And What's that spine is just literally a modified scale. Okay. Uh, our round stingrays, which are local species, think of them like pancakes on the bottom, right? Yes, they so do look like pancakes. pancakes. <laughs> they produce a new spine every year that grows underneath the old one. And then wow. every June or July, the old one falls off and a new one is in place. Hmm. So no it, it has no nerves. It, it acts like a big giant scale. It's like a tooth. It has dentine on it. And the part that makes it venomous is the mucus layer that's secreted over top of that. So oh, in that okay. mucus layer, there is a venom. So when they jab that thing into your foot, that has grooves in the bottom that quickly channel that venom into the wound and creates that very painful ache. Wow. Are, are stingrays older than sharks? No, no. So uh, it depends on the group. But uh -huh. stingrays are not necessarily older than the oldest of the chondrichthians. So the oldest of the chondrichthians are really shark-type species. So is that more like skates then? New. Say again? So are that more like skates kind of fish then? Yep. Instead of so they're also sharks? relatively okay. new compared to oh, okay. the more ancestral forms, which were sharks. Okay. Interesting. Okay. So back to the the um. The stingray. So our little stingray that we have, well, I don't know if have, he's not like that little. Our round rays, I mean, you can just go out to Granada Beach and, you know, come across one. Yes. <laughs> has that ever happened to you? I'm sure. So as regards to your studies, it's probably pretty easy to get specimens, round ray specimens in this area. Yeah, because of their abundance. They are by far the most abundant fish by mass that you will find at any Southern California beach. No kidding. So they they account for a, a bulk of the total biomass of fish at our beaches. Oh, and, wow. and and part of it, and you got to remember the species that we're talking about, this is the northern part of their range. They range all the way from Southern California to Panama. Oh, wow. So, okay. So they're at the northern end of their range. And, and their populations, we believe, have been growing over the last 50 years Good. because we got rid of all their predators. Oh. So... Mm -hmm. Seals, sea lions, giant sea bass, big sharks, you know, we culled all those things out of our coastal waters, and that's allowed our stingray population to come back. In addition, in places like Baja, where they occur also in high numbers, you typically find them in shallow lagoons, especially in the spring when they mate. Okay. In Southern California, we get rid of most of our lagoons, we've turned them into marinas. So right. therefore, they use our open beaches for that purpose. And that's oh. where people encounter them. Right. Yikes. So I didn't you know, know seals eat them. It, I mean, does so, so the stinger doesn't create a problem when they're eating or do they like, do they know how to just not eat the stinger? Yeah. So if you've ever watched the seal eat a shark or a stingray, um, what they do is it's kind of like watching a dog play with a rag doll. So they grab them and they shake them and flap them back and forth until they tear them open. And then they usually only eat the livers. 
Oh, that's it. Yeah. Oh. Pate. They're into pate. Oh, pate. Okay. We heard oh, this okay. from another uh, uh, animal that, uh, remember, what was that, the orca? Uh, yeah. yeah, they like the tongues. Yeah, like tongue the tongues. And the tongues of the whales, yes. So, right. But the reason why they eat livers is that's where all the good stuff is. That's where all the oil and fat is. That's the most okay. nutrient-rich part of the body. Ah, okay. Okay. And do sharks just swallow them whole or kind of chew them or do they yeah. do this? Yeah, same, okay. same deal. They'll, they'll bite them into pieces. Um, bat rays, they'll, they'll chew off pieces of the wing and things like that. So, yeah. Um, so, white, so sharks, white sharks just slurp them down like pancakes. Right. Um, you know, we do find sharks with lots of stingray spines embedded in their, in their jaws and their gums oh, and no their kidding. stomachs and their livers. So, um, you know, it's like trying to eat pine needles. Wow. I imagine. No, thanks. Yeah. That's gotta be pretty wild. I mean, it's, when that's happening, you're like, Oh, this is a weird shaped tooth. Oh no. It's a stingray barb, not a tooth. Wow. So is that, do they use the stinger for anything besides protection or is it just uh, for, do they use it to feed or is it just, it's just there? Nope. It's used primarily for protection from predators. But uh, a colleague of mine did a really cool study looking at round stingray mating. And he found that at the end of mating season, round stingray females will form these big giant piles where they'll pile up on each other. And when males come and try to mate with the females, the females all gang up and they spine the males. Ouch. So the females Ouch. basically say mating season is we're over. We're done. Right. We're done. Yeah. We're done. Exactly. Wow. Mm. Okay. So, so they, they will use it on each other. Um, usually females on males. Wow. Stingray on stingray crime. Who would have thought? So what do they eat then since they're bottom dwellers mostly? Do I have that correct? Are they just eating like little detritus or whatever or little f bottom things? So they eat crabs. They'll eat amphipods. Okay. They'll eat, so down at the beach, you'll see all those little clamshells. They're called yes. donuts. Yes. They'll actually eat those and they'll eat the siphons. They'll just pull the siphons off. Oh, no kidding. So um, those are primarily their diet. They'll eat worms. So they're almost exclusively eating things on the bottom. Okay. Wow. So when they do surface, I mean, it sounds like they can survive in shallow water areas, but do they like deeper water? Do they prefer to be at a certain depth? So the deepest I think they've been found is, is only like 100 feet. Oh, so, okay. So the thought is, you know, they prefer to be kind of shallow. We know that mm -hmm. they're temperature sensitive. They don't like water temperatures below 10 degrees Celsius. Okay. So so that, that limits their range north, right? Right. Um, but you do find pockets of round stingrays, for example, in Morro Bay. So, oh, okay. and the water gets a little cool, Yeah. you know, off the central California coast, but yeah, those places. The thought is that they migrated up there during a strong El Nino, and then usually where they end up living are near a lagoon where the water gets warm, or where there's a power plant. Oh, okay. So like manatees, they like the the warm power plant water. Exactly. Okay. Bunny, did you remember ever seeing the, the stingray that used to hang out in the marina where we kept our sailboat in uh, Alameda? Yeah, I do. Yeah, we there did have giant, stingrays large up there. stingray up there that liked to swim around in the marina. Maybe because there was food. I don't know. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, so here's an interesting, okay. interesting thing. It said that uh, the freshwater stingray has greater toxicity than the marine stingrays. Yeah. I don't know if that's true. I'm yeah. reading it. Yeah. 
So the venom, venom probably packs a little bit more punch, and that's probably because there's a greater variety of predators for them. So is it true that the stingray won't go after you unless you try to mess with it? Is that true? That's true. Okay. So um, they basically use that strictly for defense. Mm-hmm. Well, don't make him feel threatened. But, but uh, where were we on the beach where they say you have to shuffle your feet? What beach was that? Everywhere was that down? down here, every beach. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So yep. are they are they uh, breeding there? Is that uh, juveniles or? Yeah. So breeding like... season starts in March, and that's oh. when males and females come together, usually in okay. bays or estuaries, but they'll do it along beaches as well. And then females, after they have you know, become impregnated because they have internal fertilization. Okay. Females will move into the lagoons and they will stay in the lagoons all summer long, seeking out warm water. And mm-hmm. we think that speeds up their gestation. Oh, so okay. they have one of the shortest gestation periods of any elasmobranch. So they can produce a, a litter of pups in three months. Wow. Yeah. And how many pups will they have in a litter? Um, anywhere from about two to eight. Oh wow! Okay, and are they are they like live birth or are they eggs? Nope, they're born live. Um, oh, they're no about kidding. the size of uh, you know a, a coaster. Okay. When so they go born. from cookie size to pancake size. <laughs> yeah. So in Monterey, uh, I think they had some rays that, if you were lucky enough, you can touch. Uh, <laughs> uh, wh- which ones are those that uh, they would put out there for the public to? interact with those are the same rays but uh-huh. they've clipped off their spines oh okay okay yeah. yeah so remember the spine is like a fingernail it, uh-huh. it, it has no nerves so okay. you can take a pair of um literally toenail clippers and you can clip that off so gotcha. um now it no longer has the venomous spine and you can got it them with two fingers and pet them and you know but if you try grabbing them they will flick their tail at you Okay. Um, that's that's fair. They'll definitely do that, even though they don't <laughs> have their, their weapon anymore. Right. Well, I'm looking at a sample of a spotted eagle ray, and it, it looks like they're, they've been painted. It's just a beautiful uh, – I, I wish I could share this with you. Yeah. They're ab- no, no, no. absolutely beautiful uh, decoration on their skin. Absolutely. Yeah, I was just down in Costa Rica doing some work. And there were lots of spotted eagles raised there, and they're just absolutely gorgeous. That is so cool. Wow. So which ones are the one? do all rays, is it manta rays, the ones that will like launch themselves out of the water? And then what is, what is the, do all, I'm assuming not every ray species does that. Is that just manta rays or is that like? They all launch at some point, but where where did that behavior come from? Yeah, so so keep in mind, think of there as being several groups of rays, right? So okay, yes. the brown we'll stingrays, um, you know, they are laying on the bottom. Right. Most okay. of the time. They'll swim along the bottom, maybe a little bit on the water column, but by and large, they make their living off the bottom. Gotcha. Then we have another whole group of rays that live in the water column, right? So those are the mobulid rays. Those include the manta and the mobulids. So you've probably seen pictures or video of, it's like Mobula popcorn, where these things mm-hmm. are jumping and jumping and jumping in the water. Yes. Schools of them. Yeah. So they're plagic. They're planktivores. They're, they're filter feeders. So they're eating oh, plankton in the water. Okay. 
Whereas, you know, our bat rays and round rays, they're snurfling things out of the sediment and getting crabs and clams and worms. And those pelagic ones are swimming through the water with their mouths open and just right. taking in all the plankton they can get. Right. So the question so I, is, I, why do they jump? Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. You were saying the question. Uh, I was going to ask you about no, the you're not letting, He's not letting him finish. We're okay. still on oh, the I'm jumping sorry. thing. Sorry. Quiet, oh, you. Oh, well, uh, here, I'll ask you this question. Why do they jump? I have no idea. Get back, shake things off their skin. I don't know. <laughs> get okay, more that, food. That sounds good. I'll buy that. You got anything else? <laughs> Maybe it surprise stuns their food. I have no idea. I mean, isn't that isn't that how the thrasher shark works? It just smacks them and kind of stuns exactly. their fish. They'll smack them with their tail. But but rays jump, white sharks jump, mako's that's jump, true. freshers that's jump. True. All these oh. sharks that live in the water column jump. So okay. why do they jump? So that's a question that scientists have been trying to answer. And believe it or not, I think your explanation may be a good one. That they, you know they have the itchies, and that's a good way of dislodging things that that ectoparasites that may scratch or cause right. itch. It's a good way to dislodge them. Um, the other possibility is trying to avoid predators. One theory is that males might be showing off for females. Yeah. Okay. So like That's the whales do. Or you can jump may, may mean you're a good mate. Um, okay. And, and then another possibility, which I personally love, but have no data to back up, is that it's fun. That's yeah. right too. I like that one too. I like that one too. Jump so are males big... It could be, yeah. Are males bigger than females, or is there dimorphism in the ray world, or does it is it species dependent? It's less so than the sharks. So okay. There is a little bit of sexual dimorphism in rays, um, but it's not as pronounced as it is in sharks. Oh, okay. Gotcha. So you really have to go searching. So then, um, for the local stingrays here, have you ever been stung? Oh, many times. <laughs> Oh, gosh. Ouch. How badly does that hurt? I mean, it's, does that, how long does the sting last? Well, so it, it depends. Um, so we've been doing stingray research for over 20 years. So mm -hmm. everybody in my team gets stung uh, <laughs> at some point. And right. it's like a badge of honor now. Right. Um, and, and it depends. If you're, if you're wearing booties and you're in the water, you have this neoprene and the spine goes through the neoprene, which goes through like butter. Um, at oh. least you're rubbing off most of the mucus. Right. So you get a wound, but it doesn't hurt as bad. Right. Um, you know, we're catching them in nets and we're taking them out of the nets. And quite often I've been stung on the hands. So um, then, you know, you get everything from a full ramp. You get the full whammo to, okay, I just got a graze or things like that. It's the hot water. Hot water. You stick your hand in hot water for an hour or so. The pain immediately goes away. No um, kidding. And then after that, you just got to make sure it doesn't get infected. Right. Oh, oh okay. okay. So I guess if animal stings, that's probably the least severe of them. Now, when a ray stings, will it lose its spine or will it uh, sting and then I'm assuming swim away? Or how does that work once it stings? Can it yeah, sting so again? A lot depends on how far the spine went in. In some cases, ah. the spine does get pulled out. Oh. And we did some research many years ago that shows if you, if you physically remove the spine, they'll immediately start to regenerate a new one, which is oh, so wow. wow. But normally that's an annual process. Starting in right. May, we start producing a new one. By August, the old one falls out. But if the old one just fell out and has a new one, and we yanked it out in August, right. by the end of September, it'd have a new spawn. Oh, wow. So there's some cool physiology going on there. Yeah, um, it's because like, oh, I need... Most of the time, they don't lose the spine. They just add new mucus 
to replace the old mucus. And they can do that fairly quickly. Okay, time for my question. So uh, it seems like ray locomotion is a big, big issue. Uh, I'm looking at something here that I stumbled on. It says hydrodynamics of swimming in stingrays, numerical simulations, and the role of leading edge vortex. So are, are, is their locomotion efficient? Uh, because it was being studied by the Department of Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering in the University of Buffalo, which it freaks me out, but okay. You know, everything goes, they look to nature for every uh, thing, which we've talked about previously. So tell us a little bit about their locomotion. So it, it actually is very efficient and there are different types of ray swimming, right? So there are like manta rays and bat rays, right, which flap their wings like a bird, right? Yeah. Right. And that is actually a fairly efficient way to move through the water. Um, and then you have round stingrays that have an undulatory wave that moves right. down their fin. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So remember, um, things like manta rays that flap their wings like a bird can also bend their back. So I've, they do oh. things called barrel rolls. Yes. Where they will literally just do this barrel roll through the plankton. Yes. Right. Yes. So they keep their mouth open and roll through this cloud of plankton and just fill their gullets, right? Um, they can generate enough force that they can launch themselves out of the water. So um, the, even the Navy has been looking at that mode of propulsion because it is incredibly efficient. So it's not good for rapid propulsion, but it is good for sustained propulsion. Gotcha. Um, round stingrays, the key to that undulatory wave is maneuverability. So mm. you can undulate a wave in one direction of your fin, and then in the other direction, you can pivot on a dime, right? Oh, so it's oh like, wow. It's like a hovercraft, right? Like a shopping right. cart. All of that is based yeah. on the undulatory wave that goes down the petrol fins, and that makes them very maneuverable. Yeah. So they're not great swimmers like they can swim distances we've tagged round stingrays that have swam 35 miles in a month wow um, this is a pretty good distance for an animal that's only about a foot wide right mm -hmm. yeah um but things like manta rays can you know migrate thousands of miles right wow. so so a lot depends on how they live what they do and and how they use that mode of propulsion for their lifestyle yeah, I was trying to figure that out, how, you know, they're basically just a giant circle with a tail. It's like, how, you know, can they really turn on a dime or are they having to, you know, it's like a big semi-truck. It takes a minute to maneuver themselves, but you're saying that they can. That's that's really interesting. So then how long do they live on average? That depends on the species. Um, so um, mantas probably can live to be a lot older. Um, okay. I, I don't know the exact um age limits for some of those species. Round stingrays, we've done the aging studies on those. We estimate that the, the maximum longevity is about 15 years. Oh, that's longer than I was expecting. Wow. Okay. No kidding. So the major- so there, Are there any up in uh, uh, northern climates like, uh, you know, Oregon up further north, Alaska? Do, are there stingrays in Alaska? There, there are some. Most of those are deep water, which means if they're deep water, they can be found pretty much anywhere because they're, they're thermally limited. Mm -hmm. So they, um, for example, off Hawaii, there are some deep water stingrays and you can find those same deep water stingrays in more Northern climates in shallower water. But usually the stingrays get replaced by skates as you get further North. Ah. Okay. Okay. So they're non stinging flattened cousins. Replaced okay. Usually. Gotcha. So for the stingrays as well as the manta rays, well, it's, Interesting you brought that up, not to 
self, not to brag, but in Hawaii, my mom and I, we went night swimming with manta rays and they, you know, shine lights and it gets all the phytoplankton active. And they did those amazing barrel rolls. And these guys were probably like five feet across. I mean, just yeah. huge. And like one of, one of the wings touched me and I was like, oh my God, it touched me. That's so cool. But <laughs> uh, yeah, they're quite, for animals that are that big and in the water, they're quite majestic and elegant mm -hmm. looking. And again, they can do that barrel roll and it looks like effortless to them. And then are they social creatures? Cause I know they do that big, my, that mass migration as that huge group. Do they, is that socialization and like group living a part of them? Do stingray, are our local stingrays, do they like to live in groups? Are they solitary rays? So, so there are some that are highly social. So some okay. of the mobulids form huge schools okay, um, and they're very social. And then things like manta are a little less they still okay. form groups. Obviously, they, they form groups and mate. Um, they may feed together. Um, you know, they have very large brains. Um, so as as rays go, they have one of the largest brains, which is really oh, cool. Oh, no kidding. So it what are they doing with that brain? Go ahead. And a lot of sensory uh, equipment in there. Okay. So probably well over... Uh, half that brain is dedicated to just interpreting sensory information. No kidding. Okay. Wow. All right. Now your turn. <laughs> uh, it says, uh, I'm looking at something. I'm not even sure where I'm at, but it says skate fish can live up to 50 years versus yes. stingray 15 to 25. Wow. Right. Uh, yeah, is that can live a lot longer and that's common in animals that live in cold water. Okay. I mean, it's like the Greenland shark. They're like, this one's probably yeah. 200 years old. And it's like, it looks like it's 200 years old. Yep. yep. Wow. Can that you tell so me the difference between viviparous versus oviparous? Maybe I'm not pronouncing that right. I think he did this last yeah. time, but go ahead, Dr. Lowe. <laughs> yep. So viviparous versus oviparous, right? Yes. So oviparous are egg laying. So skates lay an egg case. Right? Yeah. The little mermaid's purse that the that the skate develops in, and the mom drops that on the bottom, and she takes off, and then you know, anywhere from a couple months to a couple years later, uh, an embryonic skate will emerge, and hatch. So that's uh, an example of ovipary, and then there's ovoviviparay, where the mom lays an egg inside, so the egg hatches internally, and then she gives birth to a live young. Oh. oh okay. So and in those little pouches, oh, what are they? How are they subsisting? You know, what are they eating or living on or breathing or oh, you know? See, that's the cool thing about shark reproduction. There's so many different strategies. So most of them start off with a big yolk, huge yolk, like a chicken. Uh -huh. Okay. But the embryo is is used up all the yolk long before it's born. So then, in some cases, the moms will continue to ovulate eggs. And then those embryos will eat those eggs. Oh, okay. Yeah. And then wow. in other cases, the female's uterine wall will get, become very fuzzy and she will secrete a glycoprotein that the embryos will drink like a protein shake. No kidding. So Holy there macro. are all these different strategies. And some sharks, they'll eat their siblings. Right. Um, you know, so, so there's lots of different examples. But in the skates and rays, the skates, which are oviparous, they only have the yolk to rely on. And then in stingrays that give live birth, they use the uterine milk. So that's where the uterus gets all fuzzy. And then the female secretes that glycoprotein that the embryos drink once the yolk is gone. That's amazing. Wow. wow that Nature's is... wonderful. Yeah. 
Yeah, no kidding. Wow. So, I had, so I had another question too about rays and well, kind of all the rays, I guess. So, you know, manta rays versus stingrays. Why do some rays have stingers? And then, you know, what is a manta ray or a bat ray gonna, or an eagle ray going to do to defend itself since it has that little skinny rat tail almost? What what are they going to do? <laughs> well, that's usually size, right? You're really big. Okay. Right. So okay. If you're that big, Fair. you know, you can usually take care of yourself. A good thin Fair slap enough. is enough to dissuade somebody. Um, that's true. Too. Okay. Yeah. That, that's and again, true. a little spine isn't going to help you if an orca decides it wants to eat you. Yeah. They'll just, yeah, they'll just eat you. So have yes. you ever come across a shark that you can tell has been, or even a ray that's been chomped on by another creature that's kind of maybe half alive, half dead? <laughs> oh, oh yeah. 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 So you can, you can tell um, some, there's some hardcore skates and, and rays out there that will have chunks, little chunks missing from them. Oh, wow. And they'll just still you know, be kind of going to... missing. Sure. And they keep going. Wow. But... Now, does that affect their swimming at all? Are they kind of lopsided with half a fin gone? They're still out there kicking. So they're doing something right. Wow. That's really impressive. So the, 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 the stingrays that are in the local area by you in Southern California, they're not going to kill you. But what about the one that killed, uh, what's his name? The, uh, Australia. Yeah. So, so those whiptail rays in Australia are get quite large, right? So they're about six feet across. Ooh. They can weigh a, a, up to a couple hundred pounds, and their stingray spine is the size of a steak knife. Oh shoot! No, thank you. So yeah. he got that right in his heart. Oh yeah, my goodness! Do, yeah, that will definitely. So he was stabbed do it. in his heart. That's what. He literally got stabbed in the heart. Yes. Yeah. Okay. That now I understand. Wow. That will definitely uh, kill you. Did, did he, um, was he messing with that uh, or we don't know? So we don't know. There yeah. are a bunch of different variations of the story, but remember I told you rays don't attack people for no reason. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It may have. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. Oh, he might've been trying to do something for camera purposes and it got a little taken away. That's uh, crazy. Uh, that just, it just, Got him right in the heart. So then, speaking of rays, oh, speaking of rays, that new th that new thing that came out that they make a noise. Yes. Um, yeah. What what is what? It, I'm assuming you've seen that. What is that? Because it sounds like just these little clicks. How are they making it? Do we know what it's for? So <laughs> they do have teeth, right? And they have tooth plates. So okay. they have the ability to grind those, obviously, to make noises. The question is sure. why? R yeah. Yeah. What 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 mode of vocalization is that and 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 how is it used and what does it mean so uh the fact that people are able to measure it's really cool but the next challenge for scientists will be what does it mean right and what what function does it serve so um you know that i it was kind of cool to see that um it'll be cool to see how many other species actually do it right but then why why did right so is this a relatively new phenomenon, the clicking noise or realizing that rays make an audible noise that humans can hear? Yeah, and I think probably what happened was there were people out there who were listening for environmental noise, right? Right. So what, what, what are the reef noises that you hear? And you get all this stuff and you don't know what it, where it comes from or, or what made it. So then people can go around just like, you know, people that do audio go around and record the sounds of various things. And you have a spectrogram, right? So you have, you know, basically what that power function is of the amplitude and the frequency of the sound that's produced. And now with new software, you can say, okay, here's the sound that this thing produces. 
here's my environmental noise. I want to search through that record for that signal. And now the software will go through and say, oh, it matches this. So now you know you have that in the environment. So that's how people are using sound to figure out what's living in a place. And if we know how far that sound can travel, we can begin to even estimate how many things may be in that place. Oh, just by wow. listening. Wow. No kidding. So would you tag rays? Can can you tag stingrays or various oh, yeah. types of rays? Yeah, we've tagged we've tagged round stingrays, we're tagging bat rays. Um, they travel long bat rays travel all over. They travel all over Southern California. So what's the purpose of their mass migration or like the manta ray mass migration that you see? Are we just not sure? They're just like, we're going this way now. Yeah, we're not sure. We're not sure why. Likely due to feeding and reproduction. Sure. So they probably feed in one place and reproduce in in, in another. And like many sharks and rays, males and females do not hang out together. So usually there's sexual segregation during non-breeding season. Where the males ah. go one someplace and females go somewhere else. So okay. usually the only time we see them together is during breeding season or when they're immature and they don't care whether one's right. or Okay. I, I, I need to ask you a short question, which is, you know, when we go whale watching, uh, they talk about whales having a identification, like a fingerprint, like on their tail. Is that hold true for sharks as well or some shark species? Yes. Yeah. So we, we know that for some shark species have unique markings that they carry throughout their lives. Oh. The tricky part of that is they also get into scuffles and get bitten up, especially the females during breeding season. And the scars can mask some of those. Ah. But with the new machine learning image processing software we have, it's amazing what you can do, right? Just like facial recognition software. So even people that have had plastic surgery, can still be recognized based on certain parameters. So scientists are now using a lot of that image processing technology to to track individuals. We want to thank you very much for your time. We don't want to- No, really quick question. How do they find their food? Are they touching, smelling, or chemoreceptors? There's a little bit of everything. All the above. So the, the rays are using olfaction. They're using sense of smell. And what's really cool about the rays is they have something called naked nematocysts. So they have these little, um, basically these little hair sensors on, on a cup that hang underneath the body. And when they go over the sand, they can feel water currents coming through the sand. So imagine you have a clam siphon that's sucking right. water ah. in, a worm that's sucking water in and spitting water out. Mm-hmm. They can feel that. And those oh, sensors wow. surround the mouth. So then they know, okay, I'm near a hole because their eyes are on top. They can't right. see what they're, it's like having a straw that you can't see. So then once they know they're in the right spot, then they can suck those things out of the sand. So what is the purpose of their eyes being on top of their bodies, essentially? I'm imagining that some sort of evolutionary advantageous feature. Yeah. So, so if you're laying on the bottom that's the best place to have your eyes is oh, on the top. Sense. So you can see things coming. Your, your belly's covered for the most part, right? Right. And then the pelagic rays, like the, the mantas, they have their eyes on the side. Right. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. That's, that's always something I've wondered about is like their eyes are just perfectly kind of like in the middle of which you, of their body. And it's like, that's an interesting spot for and eyes. And they have 180 degree vision. So they can see oh. 
all the way behind them. Yeah. Okay. That helps, I'm sure, with finding, with keeping predators and whatnot away and seeing what's going on in your world. So what's your most favorite Ray encounter or Ray story, really quick, before we wrap up here? So my my, my favorite Ray is kind of a half Ray, half shark. And that's, wow, what that's is that? The, that's the electric Ray. Oh, the so electric. So the electric Ray is, uh, has a flat disc. And it's dorsoventrally flattened like a ray. Its mouth is in the bottom. Its gills are in the bottom. Its eyes and spiracles on the top. But it has a tail like a shark, and it swims like a shark. Hmm. And what makes I it look this up is it has modified branchial muscles that act like batteries, and they can discharge all those cells simultaneously and create a strong electric discharge. So strong that they can break their prey's back. Oh, wow. 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 So for my master's thesis, I studied the Pacific electric ray, which are common off the coast of California. And we were the first to measure their electric discharge because we built an underwater housing for a storage oscilloscope, found them when they were buried in the seafloor, and then would make them mad so they would discharge and we could record it. So what are they, how many watts are they producing? <laughs> it's volts. They produce 50 volts, volts excuse me. at the surface. So that turns out that that's enough to not, to put a human heart into fibrillation. Whoa. Wow. Okay. Don't want to touch that. That's insane. How many volts did you measure? Because this says 8 to 220. So that's an air. So if you ground it, the air, you'll get 200. In water, in their natural environment where they use it, 50 volts. But 50 volts? That's producing oh, that's a enough. lot of amps. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. And remember, that's seawater. So oh, um, it's more conduction. Yes. Yikes. Yeah. Have you ever felt that? Did you, I hope oh, yeah. there weren't any. You, you can't. It's like sticking your finger in a light socket. You can't keep your hand there. Oh, my goodness. You have to oh. pull it back because the muscles contract. Right. So it, it's, it's, it's just like sticking your finger in a light socket. It's amazing. So are they using the electricity for hunting or protection of their oh, own? They use okay. it for both. Yeah. I, think, wow. I, I imagine sharks probably don't really eat those things. They probably make that mistake once and not again. Yeah. yeah. Sea, sea lion pups like to play with them once. Just like I'm looking at a picture of one and it has two, five blue spots on its head i guess it's trying to think uh, you know have its enemies think that it's some weird thing yeah but, so uh, that's, that's one of the lesser electric rays the narcissist oh it rays. is yeah they're not as strong as the torpedo rays okay it's torpedo a very interesting rays. looking where do they hang out where do the where's their uh, area so the cool thing is pacific electric rays range throughout southern california to northern california and okay. baja they lay on the bottom during the day and at night they're up in the water column and they remind me of starship enterprise because they can they're almost neutrally buoyant they can hover yeah and then what they'll do is they'll swim into a school of anchovies and then just discharge oh and then slurp up the ones that are stunned ah so in the early days we did a national geographic special where you can take remember the old photographic flash bulbs yes yes and and you could take a picture and it would flash. Yeah. We could put one of those on the end of a fiberglass rod. And if you got the rate of discharge, it would cause the flash bulb to flash. No oh, wow. kidding. It was wow. so cool. 
Wow, that is well, so that neat. That may be another. That may be another episode. Electric rays. <laughs> yeah, first, they do like have some. Uh, they do have some like dorsal. Is it a dorsal fin along their tail? Is that what you call that? Yeah, I'm looking at one, and uh, wow. Yeah, so am All I. Right. They're they're pretty crazy looking. Wow, Next. that is. Who would have thought about electric electric? You know, you know electric eel, but not mm -hmm. the electric ray. So is that a lesser known? ray species than the electric ones probably um huh. but they're they're amazing animals they really are i mean when you and, and by the way most of uh, of the work that's done studying acetylcholine receptors which are these neuroreceptors in oh humans, yeah ach mm -hmm. are done using using electric rays because they have the highest concentration of acetylcholine receptors of any known animal no kidding. Because what is when they that discharge, for? when they, in order to create that voltage, they have right. to get all their cells to depolarize. Oh, them. right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Are there, are there, is there blood um, iron-based like ours or is it copper-based? Yep. It's iron-based. Okay. Okay. So it's not like the, right. um, what is it? The horseshoe fish, the horseshoe crab that has blue blood. That is so cool. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Lowe, for your time. We It's always a pleasure sure. to have you on the show. Yes, and, absolutely. It's again, a, if, always very interesting. I hope that uh, you don't mind some of our pedestrian questions, but I try yeah. to have a higher thought questions as well so we can all learn and, and sure, be uh, sure. motivated to learn more even. Yeah. Well, thank yes. you for having me. I always right. appreciate it. Absolutely. Right. Well, and if you can, donate right. to the Shark Lab or check the Shark Lab yeah. out. Go down there always... and check it out. The next time they have an open house, it was it's, it's worth the trip. Absolutely. Thank you again, Dr. Lowe, and we will right. see you guys next week. All Thank right. You. Thank you. Bye-bye now. Well, Otto, do you approve of this week's episode? <laughs>